You're in the water loop. Hey, this is Travis with Waterloop. I want to tell you a story about High Sierra Showerheads, who I'm proud to have as a sponsor of this podcast, particularly because they make incredibly water-efficient showerheads. I've talked with owner David Malcolm about growing up in California, learning about the importance of water and energy efficiency from his father. David has been designing high-efficiency nozzles for agriculture and golf courses for the past 30 years. The golf course people actually came to him wanting a nozzle that produced a uniform spray but was water efficient. So David went in and designed a nozzle that explodes a low-pressure stream of water into a shower of large, powerful droplets. David actually thought, this would make a great showerhead, and that's how High Sierra Showerheads was born. And nobody has their nozzle technology. It's patented, and you get a great shower while saving water. Use promo code WATERLOOP for 20% off at HighSierraShowerheads.com. Waterloop, Waterloop, Waterloop. Welcome to Waterloop. This is Travis. Going to be talking about financial risk today. Very happy to be joined by Greg Chiraklis. He is Director of the Center on Financial Risk and Environmental Systems at the University of North Carolina. Greg, thanks for coming on the podcast. Thanks for the invitation. Yeah, very interested in this conversation. Um, and so I want to just start out with you kind of explaining when you talk about financial risk in environmental systems, what does that mean? Well, there's variability in lots of natural processes, variability in the amount of rainfall we, we receive each year, uh, uh, temperatures, uh, wind speeds, things like that. And uh, for a lot of organizations, that translates into financial variability or financial risk. So uh, uh, some deviation from the expectations that someone might have with respect to their costs and revenues. And that can cause a lot of disruption economically. So uh, if we were talking about rainfall, uh, of course, uh, a lack of rainfall can be a big problem for farmers. Uh, if you're talking about too much rainfall, flooding, uh, that's a problem for property owners. Um, we think about temperature. Deviations in, in temperature can be a big problem for power utilities, for example. If you have a very cool summer or a very warm winter, people are using a lot less energy than was expected. And this translates into a reduction in revenues for those groups uh, that they have to find ways to, to, to manage. Um, wind speed and, and uh, variability in sunshine these days are a, are a big deal for uh, investors in renewable energy technologies. So the idea is that if we understand variability in these natural systems, we can trace it through to, to variability in financial outcomes and give people a better idea of what risks they face and then try and come up with clever ideas for how to manage that risk. Very interesting. So the risk could be to a municipality, um, it could be to an investor, it could be to a farmer. You have kind of all these great uh, possibilities for who is at risk from the from the the I guess wild swing in in the environmental situation. Yes, and okay. and of course, uh, climate change uh, is in the background with all of this uh, because. Uh, most of the indications are that, that we're seeing greater variability in these natural processes and that we can expect even more variability in the future. Um, I should say that, that a lot of what we'll describe today is being uh, labeled as climate risk by the investor community, uh, groups like that. 
I, I would make a small distinction. It, it certainly is concerns over climate change that have brought more attention to this, this, the, these challenges in recent years. Uh, but many of the risks we're talking about existed absent climate change. So climate change certainly has the potential to make many of them worse. Uh, but these are risks that, that existed uh, regardless of, uh, of the impacts that cli with climate change that we see in the future. Because you're talking about it could be a, a drier year, it could be a wetter year, it could be a windier year. Um, it doesn't necessarily have to be a climate change fueled deviation from the norm. It could just be, hey, it was a rainy year this year, right? True. Yeah, Although okay. uh, it, climate change is, is, uh, has the potential, of course, to, to make things uh, uh, more variable and, and mm -hmm. thus to increase the risk. And do do uh, things like hurricanes factor into this? Is that that's that's a huge yeah, risk, right? Absolutely, <laughs> yeah. that, that's another uh, another big concern. Uh, you know, as we think about how, uh, how how well we can characterize these risks, this variability in these natural systems, a lot of it comes down to data. Hmm. And so uh, sometimes with with very extreme events like hurricanes. Uh, we don't have as much data as we'd like. There's only been a few of these big events that happen. Whereas if we wanted to talk about variability in wind speed or temperature or rainfall, we have sometimes a uh, uh, hundred years plus of, of records uh, that we can, we can begin to draw on as we think about uh, how much variability we might expect. And so on the water side, you mentioned too much water, not enough water. We have hurricanes. Uh, are there other water-related risks that uh, should be mentioned? Sure. Uh, we do a lot of work with hydropower producers, as you might expect when you have drought. Uh, there's there's a reduction in stream flow, and that's the fuel that, that drives the turbines. Um, and so uh, if you have uh, very low stream flow for an extended period of time, uh, an electric power, a hydroelectric power generator can expect significantly lower revenues. And that's, that's something that can be a big challenge. Uh, also for not only the generator itself, there are some independent generators, but for large utilities or even regions of the country like the Pacific Northwest that rely on hydropower for a substantial portion of their overall electric power generation, these can provide some big challenges. Um, we do some work on inland navigation, and there I'm talking about shipping in the Great Lakes or the Mississippi. Uh, when water levels are either too low or too high, this can disrupt barge traffic. And barge, uh, barges are one of the least expensive means by which we have uh, of moving bulk cargoes like uh, wheat, corn, uh, gravel, uh, uh, iron ore, things like that. And so uh, that can can significantly increase the price of those commodities uh, because the transport costs make up a substantial fraction of the overall price. Hmm. So at, at University of North Carolina, you guys are looking at these specific places around the country, looking kind of nationwide, putting out information and reports that that municipalities or investors are using. What's kind of your, I guess, the, your your work there? Uh, well, we work with a lot of different groups. There's, there's a number of different industry sectors, as we talked about, uh, uh, inland navigation, uh, barge firm, barge companies, uh, uh, large uh, uh, firms like Cargill uh, that, that move uh, crops down, down uh, the Mississippi uh, to, to export markets. Um, but increasingly, we're also seeing a lot of attention being paid to, to these sorts of issues by investors, uh, by lenders, 
uh, and the groups that service them as well, uh, groups like credit ratings agencies. Uh, from an investor standpoint, uh, in 2020, the CEO of BlackRock, which I believe is the largest asset manager in the world, came out and said that climate change represented the biggest single new threat uh, that, that they were exploring as they began to look for new investment opportunities. Uh, the credit ratings agencies, those that, that assess the credit worthiness of these, these uh, industries, have also begun to pay a lot of attention. Um, groups like S&P Standard & Poor's, Moody's, have begun to look at water utilities, power utilities, uh, large groups that depend on irrigation water, whether agricultural or the irrigation districts that provide the irrigation water themselves, uh, and have actually instituted hydrologic variability criteria into their credit ratings uh, to try and give them a, a, a better understanding of how variable the revenues and costs for these organizations might be, and thus how difficult it might be for them to, to uh, uh, reliably make payments on their, on their, on their debts. And so <clears throat> you guys, they come to you sometimes and want help with analysis or you're putting out a series of reports that they use uh, or you're interested in a particular project and reach out to that industry. I'm just kind of trying to understand a little bit about how so that, there's, that works. So there's uh, a lot of the latter. Uh, mm. Often uh, a lot of the work that we're doing uh, is funded by uh, uh, federal agencies, the National Science Foundation, the Department of Energy. Uh, groups like that, uh, uh, NOAA, uh, all of these, these groups are interested in trying to characterize uh, these risks. And so what we do then often is we go to some of these industries and describe what, what uh, uh, we're, we're trying to explore, how it might benefit them. And we've actually had a great deal of cooperation from, from these groups overall. And then some of them coming back to us later and asking us to, to work on specific issues for them. So it really is, it's, it's, it's been very gratifying to see the amount of uh, uh, interest that, that many of these groups have had in the types of work that we're doing. And, and working closely with them is great for us, too, because we learn a lot more about the systems that we need to model. Uh, it puts us in a position to, to uh, try and characterize the risks much more uh, comprehensively and then allows us to come up with some more creative solutions than we would have if we were just uh, uh, sitting in our offices at the university. <laughs> and I imagine that a lot of that cooperation from industry is coming from them seeing the risks, uh, you know, materialize to their businesses and the events of the, you know, the past recent years and everything. They're really kind of realizing this is important. I think that, that people in many of these industries have a lot of risks that they've, they've got to worry about. But more recently, as lenders, as investors, as the credit ratings agencies have begun to ask them some hard questions, uh, this has, has risen uh, to, to the top of the list or near to the top of the list. And so, yeah, um, they, they, like anybody else, they are forced to prioritize the, the risks that, that people are most concerned with. And this is, is one of the areas that, that has gotten uh, a great deal of, of attention, uh, both from the groups we talked about as well as the mainstream media these days. So uh, it's been a, a, a growing focus for many of these, these sectors. How long, how long has been the Center on Financial Risk uh, been, been working there at UNC? Well, uh, my research group has been focused on these issues for the better part of a decade now. Okay. Uh, we formally named uh, the center in 2016 uh, when the university was kind enough to, to, to make a, a significant investment 
uh, in allowing us to expand some of our activities. So, uh, and that, that includes both the, the Gilling School of Global Public Health, uh, as well as the UNC Institute for the Environment, both of which uh, have, have been uh, generous to the, to the center over the last few years. Yeah, there's so much intersection between these public health issues, environmental issues, financial issues. It it's, uh, makes sense for, the, for there to be a lot of collaboration. And then, so I guess you have a team, uh, a staff and other faculty that, that work on these projects and then probably opportunities for graduate students and others to get involved. Yes, uh, it's very interdisciplinary. Um, most of the people working in my, my research group come out of an engineering background. Uh, some with an environmental science background, uh, but they spend a lot of time uh, in courses on statistics, courses on economics, uh, finance, financial risk management. So uh, that it really is uh, a very interdisciplinary crew. Um, and, and really, it, it's, it's a wonderful group to work with uh, because we are working in similar on similar topics within different areas again whether we think about water utilities or power utilities or or agriculture inland shipping um, a lot of the base principles are the same even if the applications are a little bit different and what it allows for is a great deal of creativity on the part of the the the, the research team as as we begin to think about solutions for for uh, helping folks manage and, and cope with these risks well uh, let's talk about maybe some some tools and some solutions or case studies or, or places. What are what are some of the tools that can help with with risk management? Well, so there are a couple of different categories, and some uh, are are tools that have been used for for decades or or even centuries. You know, if if we we talk about uh, infrastructure, um, if you're talking about modulating or or managing the extremes of the water cycle. Uh, dams and reservoirs have been around a long time. They store up water for us for use during drought, during dry periods, which is great. And they also serve to hold back floodwaters during periods of, of, uh, of, of increased rainfall. And so that is one solution. And, and again, if we were talking about flooding, we could also talk about levees or something like that. Um, but these are typically expensive ways to manage some of the most extreme risks. And you would take. Uh, you need to separate out public health or public safety-related risks. If, if we're talking about dangers of, of a community uh, to a community in terms of, of uh, lives being put in jeopardy, that's one thing. Uh, but if we're talking about financial risk, it's often a very expensive way uh, to to manage the most extreme uh, sorts of events, and it's also uh, a very permanent investment, and uh, which which takes on greater. Uh, relevance when we begin to think about the uncertainties associated with climate change. Uh, we don't know what uh, climate change will bring for a lot of different uh, a, a lot of different natural processes or how they'll vary. And so as a result, we may commit to an investment in something like a levee or a reservoir that will be around for fifty or a hundred years. and yet, uh, the design criteria that we may use, thinking about the hydrologic variability that we see now versus what we might see 20, 30, 50 years down the road, might be very different. Um, and so there's there's a concern in relying entirely on infrastructure, which is is probably the primary tool that we've used in the past. So there are more adaptable measures. Uh, we usually put these in two categories. One is risk retention. Uh, and that means you mostly, the organization or the group will mostly take 
the, the risk in, and keep it internal and manage it through things like cash reserves. Hmm. So you sit on a, a rainy day fund, right, of some sort. Um, another option would be uh, the ability to raise price. Uh, when, when revenues decline uh, because of uh, or in danger of declining because you have less water to pump or you have less electricity to sell, you raise the price. There's some ability to do that as well. Um, and then the other category is risk shifting or risk transfer. And that's where you pay someone else effectively to take that risk off of your hands. So there, the most obvious example would be something like insurance or reinsurance. Uh, but there's an increasing number of, of uh, uh, novel instruments that are being offered now in the marketplace or developed uh, to try and, and facilitate this sort of risk transfer. And here I'm talking about things like derivatives. Um, there are, for the power industry, uh, things called heating degree day and cooling degree day contracts in which if you see a significant deviation from expectations, here I'm talking about a very cool summer where people are using much less air conditioning than might be expected, uh, a power company can engage in a contract that will get them a payout uh, to try and compensate for these reduced revenues during these times. Uh, there's also a lot of interest in uh, things uh, like index insurance, where the payout is not linked to the damages them it, it, itself, uh, the damages themselves, but instead uh, to some physical measure of, say, rainfall. If rainfall, cumulative rainfall over the year falls below a certain point, uh, then there's some sort of payout. Or maybe uh, in the case of a ski resort, it might be snowfall or snowpack, uh, a reduction in snowpack uh, beyond uh, 25 or 30 percent of what was expected would be uh, a, a real detriment to the to to the, to the ski resort, uh, resulting in reduced revenues, and there might be a, a way for them to to then be compensated through this this contractual form. And then there are things uh, being developed now uh, along the lines of of insurance-linked securities, things like catastrophe bonds uh, that are not necessarily. Uh, marketed by by insurers. It's not the insurers themselves taking on these risks, but rather the capital markets. So these sorts of products are offered more broadly and people have the ability to pay into these funds that sit there uh, and they earn a return on them. Uh, but if the worst happens and the, whatever event it is that triggers these, these, these payouts, uh, if that occurs, then some or all of that capital ends up going to the to to the person that suffered the damages so there's all sorts of creativity uh that that that's being exercised in this area these days and so in some ways it's a very exciting place to be yeah very very interesting uh that whole range of solutions there um the reinsurance thing always uh caught my attention because when there's a big disaster or a big incident, then these insurance companies are paying out so much money. Um, they have to kind of have insurance for themselves, right? When something it, like Superstorm Sandy comes along and does that damage in New York or whatever it might be. And the size of these events is growing, both as a result of, of variability in the climate, but also as a result of, of society building more and more, putting more value at risk. Uh, more valuable assets uh, in the way of some of these these storms uh, uh, of some of these natural events, and so uh, at one point uh, maybe the reinsurance industry was capable of 
insuring the insurers uh, <laughs> to the degree that was necessary. But now uh, there's some question as whether they have the capacity to do that. And so these things, uh, the, these newer uh, tools that are coming available, things like catastrophe bonds, are trying to take advantage of capital that is out there uh, beyond these insurers and bring that into uh, the risk management sphere. So uh, hopefully offering opportunities for, for greater efficiency, lower costs for managing these risks. And I guess that some entities will take a diversify approach where they, you mentioned all those different ways that you can kind of address risk. Um, and so I imagine they're picking and pulling sometimes and piecing things together and spreading out, spreading it out a little bit. Is that true? Or So every organization, uh, uh, tries to find some sort of layered approach, hmm. right? There, there, there are things that make sense for uh, more moderate types of, of events, damaging events, and things that make sense for more extreme types of events. And so the idea is to build some sort of integrated uh, uh, approach wherein maybe you have infrastructure taking care of the lower level risks, and then uh, you have some cash reserves for taking care of the, the events that might be a little bit more severe. And then uh, for those really extreme events for which it would be very difficult to hold as much cash on hand all the time, uh, then maybe you pass that risk along to someone else. Okay. Okay. Well, I want to ask a little bit more about some of the specific work you do. And uh, on on my end, I'm actually going to pull up uh, a, a map that you all have. Uh, kind of it's from the, the homepage of your website. So uh, it's the, it shows the United States. Uh, and you've got a, a bunch of different places where you're, you're kind of doing work. Uh, you've got icons for water, uh, financial risk, energy, food, shipping, hurricane. Um, this is really uh, cool to, to someone who li like me who likes maps and environmental policy and everything. Um, wanted to hear a little bit about some of these spots and uh, just from a high level kind of uh, the, the water risks and potential solutions for some of these, these areas. Um, maybe uh, talk about the, the Great Lakes a little bit. Sure. Uh, you know, the Great Lakes and the Mississippi experience uh, uh, similar sorts of risks when water levels, uh, particularly when water levels decline below a certain point. Um, uh, the ships, the barges that, that move through these systems are optimized uh, to make their way through the shallow locks and harbors with a maximum load, carrying a maximum load, and that causes them to, to, to sit low in the water, right? There's a, 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 a large draft between the water level and the bottom of the ship. When those water levels decline uh, below a critical threshold, then the ships can no longer carry a full cargo load. And so they have to do what's called light loading, which results in a reduction in the amount of, of, of money that they earn on the shipping, but it also results in a reduction in the amount of cargo that can be moved through those, 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 uh, those shallow areas. And so that's not only financially disruptive to the barge firms themselves, but it's also financially uh, uh, damaging to those groups that are looking to move the, the, uh, the commodities to market. And so if you understand something about variability of uh, water levels in those mm -hmm. systems, uh, you can come up with, with uh, uh, good estimates of how much money they might lose and how often, right? Mm -hmm. That's a measure of financial risk. And so uh, we've tried to come up with some, some uh, new financial instruments, in this case, index insurance that links to uh, the, the water level. And as water level declines below a certain specified threshold, then some of these firms will, will earn a payout. 
from from the insurer. And so uh, it's it's not only a problem in the Great Lakes of the Mississippi, but uh, also in any sort of, of navigable waterway that, that has a lot of commercial traffic. Uh, the Rhine and the Danube in Europe have been subject to, to uh, some significant losses as a result of, or at least commercial users there have been subject to significant losses in recent years as a result of drought. Mm, okay. And so, you, you know, you mentioned the Mississippi. Um, it's, uh, it's kind of the same water risk there uh, as, as the Great Lakes. Very similar. Yeah. Okay. Similar. Okay. Different, different systems, but a similar, similar mechanism. Sure. Uh, you know, one of the areas that caught my attention too is the, the Central Valley out in California. You've got a, a water icon out there. What's, uh, what's going on in the Central Valley? So we've got uh, a lot of interrelated uh, challenges associated with drought uh, in the Central Valley. Uh, one is that uh, obviously when there's, there's less water, then there's less hydropower. And so less hydropower typically means that the power companies have to rely more on thermal generation, natural gas, coal, et cetera. Uh, usually natural gas in California, which is more expensive than hydropower. So as they rely more on that, the price of electricity can go up. Now, at the same time, when farmers experience drought and have less surface water available for irrigation, they pump more groundwater. So they're bringing that water up from several hundred feet down, uh, which takes a lot of electricity. And so they're subject to some financial risk because at exactly the time they're using the most electricity, the price tends to be higher. And so that puts them in a difficult position. So uh, understanding how these systems are linked is a big part of what we do. Um, and so even when uh, the risks are not terribly obvious, just based on one measure, uh, if we can put together a, a more integrated understanding of the system, we can give people a better uh, feel for for their financial risk. Yeah, uh, you know, looking back at the map again, there's there's a lot of water pieces around here, but um, you have one that's just kind of nation national. Uh, it says U.S. Water Utilities and has got a water drop there. What's going on? So, water utilities face a, an interesting challenge these days. Uh, it's become more and more difficult to expand supplies. We're not building many new reservoirs anymore, both because we've We've used up the, the, the best available sites, uh, and thus those that remain are more expensive, and also because we've become more aware of the environmental impacts associated with these big water projects. So as the pace of expansion for these new water sources uh, has slowed, uh, the question is, how do we begin to manage drought? Because in the past, we've managed it mostly by maintaining a lot of capacity that's rarely used, but is available to us when these dry periods come. And so increasingly what you see is water utilities turning to what we would call adaptive measures. So they put in place the conservation measures we're all familiar with, uh, right? We can't water our lawns or wash our cars outside. Uh, all those, those have become in increasingly stringent in recent years. Um, and then in a lot of areas, we end up buying water from someone else that can spare it. Uh, if we're in the East, uh, sometimes there's a, another water utility nearby that we can buy water from. If we're in the West, it's often uh, cities buying water from agriculture. Now, what this does relative to the past is it throws the financial uh, planning of the utility 
uh, into a different light. Whereas before they would have one big reservoir that they would need to make payments on at a constant level because they had taken out debt every year. They knew what they needed to meet. Now they're in a situation where what happens if they put in place very stringent conservation measures? Well, it reduces their revenues. And what happens if they're buying water from agricultural or, or uh, uh, nearby urban areas? That increases their costs. And so they've got to manage this level of financial variability that they never had to deal with in the past. And so one of the things pushing them to manage it is the credit ratings agencies that have begun to look at their financials in the last 10, 15 years and saying, wow, there's a lot more variability here than there used to be. And that's a problem for, uh, or the, the, the threat of a, a change in their credit rating is a big problem for water utilities because the vast majority of their costs are associated with debt service. They've borrowed money through the municipal bond market to pay for all the pumps and the pipes and the equipment. And so even a small change in their credit rating results in a change in the interest rates that they pay on that debt. And if you wanted an example, you could think about it as a homeowner. Even a small change in the interest rate that we would pay on our mortgage, 1%, 2%, results in a big change in our monthly outlay. And so water utilities experience that often uh, to a much higher degree because you're talking about organizations where often 50 plus percent of their annual costs are associated with debt service. Mm. So they've got they've got some big challenges that they need to deal with over time and are trying to come up with with new ways to do it. And so we've looked at how they might pool their risks because not everyone experiences drought at the same time. So the idea would be that uh, uh, rather than each of us sit on a $100 reserve to pay out when, when uh, the drought comes, maybe each of us could put in 20 or $30 into a common pool knowing that not all of us are gonna be calling on it at the same time. Now, how big that pool has to be 20 or $30 per or 40 or $50 per utility uh, requires a lot of understanding of the natural system. And so we spend a lot of time trying to, to come up with uh, assessments of, of uh, how correlated conditions are across uh, uh, broad spatial areas. And that way we can make better assessments of, of how large that fund would need to be. Mm. Very, very, very interesting. Uh, well, I definitely encourage uh, people to go to your to your website and uh, you know take a look and the, look at these different areas and the the information that links to them all. It's it's interesting <laughs> to to me for sure. Um, lastly, I, I kind of want to ask uh, maybe looking in your crystal ball a little bit at the in, into the future here into this field of work. Um, you know how you see it continuing to change. And what role, you know, the changing climate and the unpredictability figures into all that as well. Just it, it seems like this field's been changing rapidly recently with all these different tools and options. Um, so, yeah, just kind of wondering as your, your thoughts on going forward, what this could look like. You know, it, it, it strikes me that that uh, it will be the investors, it will be the lenders uh, and, and the groups that support them, like the credit ratings agencies, that will really begin to drive uh, change in this area. Uh, as more and more uh, organizations are asked by these groups uh, to explain uh, the risks that they are subject to and to describe the, the risk management strategies uh, that they're using to try and mitigate some of these risks, 
uh, I think you'll continue to see a lot of innovation. Um, I think one of the interesting areas in which uh, we're seeing some change, and, and this is an area in which we spend a lot of time from a research standpoint, is it used to be that, that you would focus on uh, only uh, perhaps the natural system. So how much rain does it, ca- uh, does it take to uh, create a flood of a certain size? Uh, or um, uh, how, how, how much does wind speed have to change before uh, I, I can't produce enough wind power to pay off on my investment? Something like that. But increasingly what we're seeing is that uh, to do a proper assessment of the financial risk, it requires an understanding of multiple components. Mm. So we talked about hydropower earlier. So, um, or even we talked about water utility. So a water utility um, is subject to natural variability in stream flow, which says how much water is coming down the stream. So you've got the natural system there. Uh, but invariably, these systems are managed to some degree by, say, a dam or a reservoir. So you have to not only understand uh, how rainfall translates into stream flow, but how much storage you have in that reservoir to protect you from drought as well. So the infrastructure is important. And then you may move on to the next situation and have to understand uh, the economic system. So it's not only uh, the, the, uh, the natural and the, infra- the natural system, the infrastructure that are contributing to saying how often you'll be short of water, but it's the price for water uh, that you can charge that may also have a big impact. So what we're seeing now is that really to understand many of these risks, you have to have an understanding of all three components, mm-hmm. the natural processes, the infrastructure, and the economic systems in order to characterize the risk and then in order to come up with, with new financial instruments, new uh, uh, risk management strategies that that can cost effectively mitigate that risk. Yeah, complex and interdependent. <laughs> um, very interesting. Well, Greg, I appreciate the time uh, and and all this perspective and information. I learned a ton, uh, and I feel like there's a chance to drill down into some of these geographic areas and and have conversations there. So maybe that'll happen in the future. But uh, thank you so much for your time. Really appreciate it. Thanks. Enjoy talking with you. The Waterloop Podcast is brought to you by High Sierra Showerheads, the smart and stylish way to save water, energy, and money while enjoying a powerful shower. Use promo code WATERLOOP for 20% off at HighSierraShowerheads.com. You're in the Waterloop.